Welcome to conference coverage presented by ReachMD Radio on XM160 and powered by Health Day, featuring the latest clinical information and research findings from the American Diabetes Association's 70th Scientific Sessions in Orlando, Florida, June 25th to the 29th. I'm your host, Dr. Markina. And I'm Sue Berg. The American Diabetes Association's 70th Scientific Sessions took place June 25th through 29th in Orlando, Florida, and attracted about 13,500 professional attendees from around the world to share cutting-edge research, treatment recommendations, and advances toward a cure for diabetes. An important meeting highlight was the release of the final accord, Action to Control Cardiovascular Risk in Diabetes, results. The Accord results confirm that neither intensive lowering of blood pressure, intensive lowering of blood glucose, nor treatment of blood lipids with a fibrate and a statin drug reduce cardiovascular risk in type 2 diabetic patients who are at severely high risk for cardiovascular events. However, researchers did observe improvements in microvascular conditions such as progression of diabetic retinopathy, visual acuity, and renal and nerve function. In a statement, the director of the Division for the Application of Research Discoveries at the NIH's National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute, Dr. Denise Simons-Morton, said that these results underscore the importance of patient-centered care, stressing individual treatment choices made in consultation with a physician. Other meeting highlights included the Healthy Living Partnerships to Prevent Diabetes study, which showed that a community-based diabetes prevention program helps people lose weight and lower blood sugar as effectively as individual counseling by health professionals. During the study, researchers assigned one group of participants to a lifestyle intervention group, including six months of weekly group behavioral weight loss sessions run by lay community health workers rather than professional behavioral specialists, followed by monthly meetings encouraging participants to improve their eating habits and exercise up to 180 minutes per week. A second group was assigned to usual care of two visits with a dietitian and a quarterly newsletter with tips for lifestyle changes. Compared to the usual care group, researchers found that after 12 months, the intervention group had lost significantly more body weight, an average of 7.3% in the intervention group versus an average of 1.3% in the usual care group. Researchers also found that after 12 months, the intervention group reduced blood glucose levels by an average of more than 4 milligrams per deciliter, while the usual care group reduced levels by less than 2 milligrams per deciliter. The study's lead investigator noted that some of the healthcare workers were patients with diabetes who had been trained to work with pre-diabetic participants. This approach seems to show promise for preventing diabetes and would be translatable to public health settings. A study led by researchers from the University of Pittsburgh Graduate School of Public Health suggested that increased intake of omega-3 fatty acids does not improve cardiovascular disease risk in women with long-standing type 1 diabetes. The researchers assessed outcomes in 601 men and women who were diagnosed with type 1 diabetes between 1950 and 1980. About 28% were diagnosed with cardiovascular disease. Consumption of more than 0.2 grams of omega-3 fatty acids was associated with a lower incidence of cardiovascular disease in men, but no such benefits were observed in women. The lead author said in a statement that although omega-3 is typically associated with decreased risk for cardiovascular disease, this may not be the case for women who have type 1 diabetes. Further, these findings suggest that clinicians can't assume that men and women with type 1 diabetes are the same.
Another study from the University of Pittsburgh Graduate School of Public Health suggests that death rates from type 1 diabetes are steadily improving, but gender and racial disparities remain. Researchers followed about 1,100 patients diagnosed with type 1 diabetes between 1965 and 1979. 26% of these patients had died by January 2008. Compared to death rates in matched subjects from the general population, death rates were found to be seven times higher in these patients overall, but only five and a half times higher in patients diagnosed between 1975 and 1979. Compared to the general population, death rates were higher in women with type 1 diabetes than in men. Death rates for women were 13 times higher than the general population, compared to five times higher for men. In addition, 30-year survival was 52% in African-American patients compared with 82% in white patients. The study's lead author remarked that these findings suggest the positive impact of advances made in recent decades. However, significant disparities in mortality reveal a need for continuing improvements in diabetes treatment and care. For patients with established type 2 diabetes, intensive glucose-lowering therapy improves some outcomes, but is also associated with increased mortality, risk of severe hypoglycemia, and weight gain. This was according to researchers who conducted an analysis of the ACCORD study. Outcomes assessed included dialysis or renal transplantation, high serum creatinine, retinal photocoagulation or vitrectomy, and peripheral neuropathy. Intensive therapy was not found to reduce risk of advanced measures of microvascular outcomes. However, it did delay the onset of albuminuria and improve some measures of eye complications and neuropathy. Intensive therapy was also found to be associated with increased weight gain and high risk for severe hypoglycemia. In a related study, researchers from the ACCORD study group and the ACCORD I study group found that, in type 2 diabetes patients, intensive glycemic control and combination dyslipidemia treatment lowered the rate of diabetic retinopathy progression, though intensive control of blood pressure did not. Researchers concluded that the observed benefits of intensive glycemia management should be weighed against higher total and cardiovascular-related mortality, weight gain, and severe hypoglycemia. Investigators reported that adults and children with suboptimal control of type 1 diabetes may achieve significant improvement in glycated hemoglobin levels with the use of a sensor-augmented insulin pump compared to a regimen of multiple daily injections of recombinant insulin analogs. 485 patients were randomly assigned to receive either sensor-augmented pump therapy or multiple daily insulin injections. After one year, researchers found that the mean hemoglobin A1c level in the pump therapy group had decreased from 8.3 to 7.5 percent. In the injection therapy group, mean hemoglobin A1c level only dropped from 8.3 to 8.1 percent. They also found that a higher proportion of patients in the pump therapy group reached the hemoglobin A1c target of less than 7 percent. No significant group differences were found in the rates of severe hypoglycemia. The incidence of diabetic ketoacidosis was negligible, and there was no significant difference in weight gain between groups. The study was supported by Medtronic, LifeScan, and Bayer Healthcare. Novo Nordisk supplied the insulin aspart used in the study. Beckton Dickinson supplied blood glucose meters. Several authors disclosed financial relationships with these and other pharmaceutical and medical device companies. In contrast to other recently published research, one study suggests that rosiglitazone may not increase the risk of death, stroke, or heart attack, though it does increase fracture risk in patients with type 2 diabetes and established cardiovascular disease. 
Investigators conducted a post hoc analysis of over 2,000 patients with type 2 diabetes and stable coronary artery disease. After analyzing four and a half years of follow up data comparing outcomes in patients receiving rosiglitazone and those not receiving any thiazolidine dione drugs, researchers found that rosiglitazone was not associated with an increased risk of death or heart attack. Nor did they show that rosiglitazone was associated with any protective cardiovascular benefits. But death, heart attack, and stroke rates tended to be about 28% lower in the rosiglitazone group compared to the control group. There was also an association with a statistically non-significant increase in the rate of congestive heart failure and a 45% increase in fracture rates. In a statement, the study's lead investigator said that these data are important because they suggest that there's no significant cardiovascular harm posed by taking rosiglitazone for patients with type 2 diabetes and coronary heart disease. A school-based intervention for obesity and type 2 diabetes risk in particular ethnic and socioeconomic groups did not result in greater decreases in the rate of overweight and obesity than at schools not performing an intervention. This was the finding of researchers at Temple University in Philadelphia and colleagues. Forty-two schools were randomly assigned to either the school-based program, which emphasized nutrition, physical activity, behavioral knowledge and skills, and communications and social marketing, or to assessment only. Over 4,000 students were assessed for body mass index, waist circumference, and fasting glucose and insulin levels at the beginning of 6th and 8th grade. Overweight and obesity decreased in the intervention as well as the control schools and researchers found no significant group differences. However, they found the intervention was associated with greater decreases in secondary outcomes, such as BMI, percentage of students with waist circumference of at least the 90th percentile, and fasting insulin levels. The authors say the reasons for declines in overweight and obesity in the control schools were unclear but encouraging and should be explored with other recently compiled longitudinal data sets. Dutch researchers reported that a once-weekly injection of exenatide may be associated with better glycemic control and greater weight loss than daily injections of insulin glargine in patients with type 2 diabetes who have inadequate glycemic control despite treatment with first-line blood glucose-lowering drugs. 456 patients were randomly assigned to add either exenatide via a 2 mg once-a-week injection or a once-daily insulin glargine injection to their blood glucose-lowering regimens. After 26 weeks, exenatide was associated with a modestly greater decrease in the mean level of hemoglobin A1c than insulin glargine, 1.5 versus 1.3%. The exenatide group also had a lower rate of hypoglycemia, as well as a mean loss of 2.6 kilograms in body weight, while the insulin glargine group had a mean gain of over 1 kilogram in body weight. Discontinuation because of adverse events was 5% in the exenatide group versus 1% in the insulin glargine group. The authors of a comment accompanying this study write that currently there is more promise, few disadvantages, and some unknowns about treatment with long-acting exenatide for diabetes. In another related study, patients with type 2 diabetes treated with metformin were found to be more likely to achieve optimum glucose control, weight loss, and a minimum occurrence of hypoglycemic episodes if once-weekly exenatide was added to their treatment regimen instead of maximum daily doses of pioglitazone or citagliptin. Both studies were funded by Amelin Pharmaceuticals and Eli Lilly and Company. Several authors disclosed financial relationships with these and other pharmaceutical and medical device companies. According to UK researchers, in pregnant women with type 1 diabetes, vitamin C and E supplementation does not reduce the risk of preeclampsia. 
762 women with type 1 diabetes who presented between 8 and 22 weeks gestation were randomly assigned to receive either 1,000 milligrams of vitamin C and 400 IU vitamin E or match placebo daily until delivery. Overall, the researchers found that rates of preeclampsia were not significantly different in the supplementation and placebo groups, 15 versus 19 percent. But among women with initially low antioxidant status, their results suggested that supplementation was associated with a significantly lower risk of preeclampsia. The authors cautioned that this finding requires further study, and any single intervention is unlikely to be effective in prevention. And researchers found that in patients with type 2 diabetes who do not respond adequately to metformin alone, the addition of the drug dapagliflozin may be an effective treatment option. Dapagliflozin is a selective sodium glucose cotransporter 2 inhibitor that acts without affecting insulin-dependent systems. UK researchers randomly assigned nearly 500 type 2 diabetes patients who had inadequate glycemic control with daily metformin to receive either placebo or one of three daily doses of dapagliflozin at 2.5, 5, or 10 milligrams in addition to their pre-study doses of metformin for 24 weeks. The researchers found that mean hemoglobin A1c decreased by 0.67% in the 2.5 milligram dapagliflozin group, 0.7% in the 5 milligram group, and 0.84% in the 10 milligram group. Mean decrease in the placebo group was only 0.3%. The study was supported by Bristol Myers Squibb and AstraZeneca, which are jointly developing dapagliflozin. Several authors disclosed financial relationships with one or both of the companies and other pharmaceutical and medical device companies. Finally, researchers found that diabetes independently doubles the risk of a range of vascular diseases and may now account for one in every 10 deaths from cardiovascular disease. A meta-analysis was conducted of 102 prospective studies involving nearly 700,000 people in 25 countries who initially had no vascular disease. Researchers found that diabetes was strongly associated with an increased risk for coronary heart disease, ischemic stroke, hemorrhagic stroke, unclassified stroke, and the aggregate for other vascular deaths. At a 10% adult population-wide prevalence, they estimate that diabetes accounted for 11% of vascular deaths. But in patients without diabetes, they found only a weak association between fasting blood glucose concentration and risk of vascular disease. This study was partly supported by Pfizer. One author disclosed financial ties to Pfizer and other pharmaceutical companies, and one to GlaxoSmithKline. Thank you for listening to conference coverage from the American Diabetes Association's 70th Scientific Sessions in Orlando, Florida, June 25th through the 29th. Conference coverage is a presentation of ReachMD Radio, broadcast on XM160 and by live stream at ReachMD.com, and powered by Health Day.